Hello and welcome to another episode of Tales Podagogy. This is the podcast which brings you everything that you need to know about teaching and learning, produced by the editors and writers at TES. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing classroom teachers today. This season will bring you a wealth of new guests who will all shine a light on their research and how it translates into the classroom. We will also dig into our archive to bring you the best episodes from past seasons. These have all been chosen because they continue to have relevance for teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a features writer at TES, and this week my guest is Rob Webster. Webster conducts research and writes about special educational needs and inclusion. He is the director of the Education, Research, Innovation and Consultancy Unit at the University of Portsmouth and is also a leading expert on teaching assistants. Now, SEND Education is under the microscope at the moment. At the end of March, the government published the SEND Review, Right Support, Right Place, Right Time which sets out proposed reforms to send education. It seeks to address three challenges. The first is that children and young people with SEND have poor outcomes. The second is that navigating the SEND system is not a positive experience for children, young people and their families. And the third is that despite investment, the system is not delivering value for money for children, young people and families. In the review, the government also urges mainstream schools to admit more pupils with SEND rather than have them attend overcrowded, oversubscribed special schools. In this podcast, Webster argues that inclusion policy has been failing for decades. This failure to learn from the lessons of the past, he argues, puts us at risk of having yet another send policy that overpromises and underdelivers. To begin with, Webster gives an overview of where pupils with send currently attend school. Yeah, I mean, there are a few key facts, I suppose, around this, where, where, where they are and what their sort of very broad profile is. So we know from the latest DfE data that for the state-funded education system in England, so the, the four regions um, collect data separately, but just, just for England, um, the current figures are that there are 16.6% of pupils in school, that's almost one and a half million um, are identified as having special educational needs. And that, that um, figure is composed of 12.6% of pupils who are identified as having uh, or on SEN support. And uh, 4% um, uh, are, are pupils who have an education, health and care plan. So these are the pupils who have those, you know, legally um, binding um, documents which um, specify that they should receive more support than is ordinarily available through SEN support. Um, of, of those children who have an EHCP, the most common primary type of need um, is autism spectrum uh, disorder, as, as is in, uh, uh, specified in the, in, the, in the DfE wording, and that's roughly about one in three children. Um, uh, are um, uh, identified as having ASD, who have an EHCP. And in terms of where they are, um, about 51% of pupils with an EHCP are in a mainstream school, and about 39% are in a state-funded special school. And that's just um, those percentage figures have, have, have shifted slightly in the in the sort of 12 months between um, 2021 and 2022 when these data were um, last collected. Um, so there is sort of one percentage point fewer kids in um, with the HCPs in special schools, and one percentage point more pupils uh, with the HCPs in mainstream schools. And the, of the other 
remaining 10%, most of those children are in, are in, 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 in an independent setting. Um, and there's probably th- three sort of key uh, points to make about, about um, the, the uh, situation as it currently is. Um, the first one is th- these data are showing um, a consistent year-on-year increase in the number of children who have um, special needs in our in our um, system in England, and just between those those last twelve months between January's um, twenty one and twenty two, um, there are seventy seven thousand more children who've been identified with special educational needs or have an EHCP. So both in both of those categories combined, and according to the DfE stats, now the the number of pupils who have an EHCP has increased by fifty percent since 2018 so these numbers aren't just sort of going up um in you know in small uh increments they're going up in quite large jumps um the 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 stats as well also sort of hide a bit of a a history for some children um who have who have specialty so again according to the um the dfe data on this in 2021 36 percent of pupils who who were in year 11 um, had been identified with having SCN at some point in their educational journey. About, about 80% of those children uh, were found in, in mainstream schools. So there is, uh, you've got roughly 17% of, of the population who have SCN, but um, almost twice that number who have had SCN at some point and may have sort of come off the, the SCN register. Um, and, and the third point really to make is the... The known overlap that there is with with, with kids who have SEN and who also um, experience educational social disadvantage. So the proportion of kids with an EHCP who are also eligible for free school meals about forty percent, and slightly lower for those on on SEN support, thirty six percent. So that's um, another kind of u- uh, useful thing to hold in mind when we're talking about this population compared to the school population at large. They sort of experience. Um, greater or, or a greater proportion of them, I should say, um, experience educational disadvantages as it's, me- as it's measured through um, FSM. With that, um, you know, the the increase of the EHCPs by 50%, I mean, just, you know, from your experience in this area, do we know why there has been that big increase? Is it because we're just better at spotting um, and diagnosing now, you know, with ASD, I know there's um, a lot of work being done around different um, different traits for girls, for example. Um, is 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 that kind of? You know, do we know anything about why that's increased? Uh, I mean, the the, the DFE um, data I was referring to that they don't um, they sort of don't go into that. Um, but I suspect it's a combination of things. It is a um, uh, your better identification and better um, diagnosis. Um, I, 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 I suspect that there is, um, I mean, it, it, another thing that's kind of going on, but it doesn't quite explain the the, um, the increases we're seeing in the school age population is that EHCPs now run until the age of 25. So that sort of, that wider population of, of people who might have an EHCP is kind of bigger than, is, is always going to be sort of quite large because we're, because children are, are, are aging, as well as being kind of added into that system, um, I'm not entirely sure on on what the, the 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 precise drivers for that are. There will be, I'm sure there are there are interesting things going on at local level in terms of um, 
parents being being more successful in ensuring their children um, get get an EHCP, and we 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 know that there are sort of high levels of um, success at tribunal. Those so you put success in inverted commas really for those people who are experiencing. It, they would. Um, it's it's a it's a very hard one. Um, but yeah, I suspect, I suspect there's a combination of factors relating to assessment, identification, um, and local factors too. So where students for SEND are in mainstream schools, what does this provision look like? Webster conducted research between 2011 and 2017, which was the UK's largest study of the everyday school experiences of pupils with an EHCP to answer this question. This summer, his findings have been published in a book, The Inclusion Illusion, which is available to download for free. Here, he explains the research and the findings. We we did uh, we did two studies. Um, it started out with a uh, a population of about forty eight children um, in in primary school. They all happened to be in year five. And they all had um, a statement at the time. So this the first wave of this research was actually done uh, a few years prior to the the system changing um, in two thousand and fourteen. Uh, and we followed those, we waited until those children reached year nine when they were in uh, secondary school, by which time the system had changed to EHCPs. And um, we tracked them uh, again on a slightly larger sample as well. It was again, it was going to be in the, in the order of about 50 uh, children all in all. And uh, what, we, what we did, uh, the, the kind of main part of this research used uh, a technique called systematic observation. And um, it's a it's quite a quite a resource intensive uh, way of going about doing classroom observations, but there really isn't kind of anything quite like it for giving you a really um, robust and quite in quite detailed picture of what is going on in the classroom. If uh, as as we wanted to do, we wanted to tell a story about what school is like for children who have statement stroke EHCP. Um, and I suppose the thing you kind of need to know about systematic observations, it's a little bit like taking uh, a, pit, a snapshot of the classroom every minute. There are different ways of doing it. It's quite common to take a picture sort of every minute, um, uh, tick some things off a list, and it builds up a picture of what the classroom looks like from the point of view of any particular child. So in this case, we were interested in kids who, who had a statement or, or latterly an EHCP. Um, and we did this over um, the course of, of two school years, as I said. And um, I mean, it, it amounts to a, a large, a large data set. It's quite uniquely large. We're not aware of any um, data set quite like it. So just to sort of put some numbers on that for you, uh, we, we our research team sat in on one and a half thousand lessons um, and collected uh, one thousand one hundred thirty-three hours worth. Of of data in primary and secondary classrooms, so we can be quite confident about what we're we're saying about what we think that the classroom looks like for um, for these children. Across how many schools was that? Sorry. Well, it was forty five primary schools, about thirty four secondary schools. So in the secondary schools, we might have been tracking three or four different different children. We had a you know a researcher um, shadowing each one, and they were they were they were quite spread across the country. We had schools in London, we had schools in 
in the east of England, um, up as far as Yorkshire and the Humber, uh, Birmingham as well, Manchester also, uh, down in Hampshire. I think that's probably the uh, the the, the, um, the sites um, where we conducted this research. And um, I mean, essentially, what we found, okay, is that in in primary schools, if you are a child who has an EHCP in a in a primary school, you spend most of your time. It's not going to come as a huge surprise to anyone when I say this that you spend most of your time um, in a in a sort of mixed attaining classroom with with your peers. Um, there is usually there's a teacher in the classroom, and very very often there's a teaching assistant as well. And and on the face of it. This looks this looks quite normal, right? If you are if you are you know um, a child who doesn't have SEN, um, the classroom looks very much the same um, uh, to you as that. What the what the systematic observation allowed us to do is to sort of burrow a little bit deeper into what the sort of moment by moment experiences are for kids who have um, special needs and, and 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 compare that as well to um, uh, you know what a sort of typically developing child was experiencing um and what we found was that the the the, the children who uh have uh ch- children who, ha- who have a who have an ehcp um i mean actually it's it what was really quite surprising was how um how how little time they spent in the classroom compared to their their peers so at the the, at the kind of scale we were we were working um it, it adds up to about a day a week outside of the classroom. So immediately, it's not like one day, it's like Tuesday, they're, all, they're out of the classroom and they're in the class. It's just sort of, it's cumulative. You know, it might be five minutes here, 10 minutes there, half an hour there, an hour there. But it adds up to just over a day a week. Um, and most of the time when they are, they are they're in, in the classroom, they are supported by a teaching assistant. And there's a lot of interaction between the, the teaching assistant and and the pupil um, that quite often happens a little bit um, you know, just between those two, just between those two people. Um, and sometimes there's like a lesson going on around them. And if if you kind of walked, if you just sort of walked past that classroom and you, and you looked in through the window, you'd have a hard time distinguishing what was different about what the child with the that the EHCP was experienced as opposed to anybody else. But when you sort of zero in on it, you realise that what's what's kind of happening when they are in the classroom is that the high amount of support they have from teaching assistants actually tend to cut across the kinds of experience that you get if you don't have SCN and you aren't supported by a teaching assistant. So, um, for example, the the way the, these sort of one to one interactions are sort of happening maybe when the teacher's talking, or instead of you know, the child might be working with the teaching system when their peers are working with one another. So it sort of cuts across these opportunities and interactions that other children have. Um, and what's kind of what's kind of quite striking about about when you when you look across these data is that. Um, the the kind of the kinds of experiences we see for for children with 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 the EHCPs um, are just very very different to to the um, yeah the non SEN children in a way that just it just doesn't there's no sort of comparison it's only children who 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 have uh, who have EHCPs that seem to experience this level of sort of separation within the classroom and what we saw in the, the secondary schools was not 
not dissimilar. Rather, rather though, I suppose the biggest difference was rather than having uh, time out of the classroom in the in the corridor or something or another room like you have in primary schools. Is it what secondary schools tend to do? Is they sort of split the children out, usually on the basis of attainment, and they put them into into sets. Um, so you are rather than being outside the classroom, you're just in a very diff- you're just in a different classroom. Um, and it was quite it was one of the things we were we looking at in our um, uh, in our observations was we were recording every <clears throat> excuse me every five minutes the number of children who were in the classroom. I mean, there, there are various ways in which you can kind of record class size. You can sort of go by the register, or you can just take account at the beginning of the lesson. But class size can be quite fluid um, uh, over the course of a lesson. So we sort of um, monitored this as as the observations went on. Um, and it's what's what's kind of really interesting. In in I should probably say first of all that what the the sort of average average attaining child in a secondary school is experiencing is uh, they're they're in a classroom with their average attaining peers with with a teacher. What happens in secondary schools tends to be that the the children with the, the EHCPs are split out um, into much smaller classes, and I'll, I'll come to the numbers in just a second. And they are they tend to be with other SEN children and other lower attaining children. And as well as a teacher being inside the classroom, there's also a teaching assistant. So just to sort of give you a sense of the class size, because I think this is quite striking. We found that the the average attaining children were in class sizes of um, average of 21 children. In um, three quarters of the observations we did in the in the, in the classes where the where the children with the EHCPs were, there were 16 children or fewer, and in 55 percent of the observations there were 12 or fewer. Um, and it's really again if you sort of if you walked past a a, a, a a uh, classroom where the average an average attaining child is, um, you would see you know a very 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 uh, familiar picture um, that everyone can relate to. You have a, a teacher leading the class with about you know, twenty or so secondary age children in it. If you walked past a class with the children with the EACP in it, you see something quite different. You see more adults and fewer children. And on the face of it, that looks like quite a good arrangement. You would say that's got to be a good thing. For those children in the classroom, but we also um, collected a lot of qualitative data through um, through interviews. We did about four hundred and fifty interviews with, with pupils and, and school staff and parents. And what we found, I think, the the, um, the 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 kind of quick way into this is that that the the pedagogical diet that the the children with the EHCPs were experiencing was definitely lower in sort of quality and expectation than the uh than what you, you see in, in in classes with average attaining children so as, i suppose sort of summing it up what you what you see is what we see in the data is a is these patterns of of marginalization which you just don't see for average attaining average attaining pupils and even where you think that might be um, adv- advantageous because you're in smaller classes and you have maybe have support from a from an additional adult. That does not seem to lead to a, what you might think of as a better pedagogical experience. So the way I, I sort of sum it up is that um, you have children who are perhaps in primary settings. They are perhaps in the class, but they are not 
of the class. You know, there, there, is, a, there is something sort of slightly separate about what oftentimes what they are, what they're doing with, um, uh, during the lesson. Um, and the other quite striking thing, I think, that these um, that these these sort of data lead you to conclude is that um, you know, attending a mainstream school as these as these children do doesn't seem to be a guarantee of having a mainstream education. It is a form of education, but it is not the same as the, what their average attaining peers seem to be experiencing. On the face of it, more one-on-one support with children with SEND and smaller classes for them seems like a good thing. But if that then results in a diluted pedagogical diet and structural exclusion, what is the alternative? I think I think it's really important to say um, that it, it's it could be you, you, you could be listening to this and. Um, you, you could what you could be hearing is some sort of implicit um, criticism of schools. Uh, you know that the, the, these are choices that they make to to, to set things up, and you know, it, it sort of as I say, it sort of seems to disadvantage some of the, the children who enter the system. Disadvantage, and it's really important to say that's not that's not my position on this at all. I I think we are a bit I think we've become a bit hardwired into structures and and processes that we seem to think intuitively are it's sort of in the better interests of children with um with with SEN but actually we and maybe it's a case of you know we, we sort of know not what we do you know we, we 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 intuitively you know smaller class sizes groups with a sort of narrow attainment range additional adults would all seem to suggest that's got to be a better um, set up for those children, but it's quite clear we're not making the best of those kinds of arrangements. In the book, I'm not I'm not sort of pointing the finger at at schools and saying you're 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 getting this wrong and you're failing children. I think one of the things that was really striking in the the research that we did was that we didn't go into any school where we thought these these. This school is letting these children down. You know, they are, there is there is no school where they weren't doing the 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 best that they could um, for those children. There was no sense that they were they were you know you didn't come away with with, with thinking you know, they were they were coming off second best. Or there was any intention for them to come off second best. It's just that there are there are sort of pressures in school which I think make this almost inevitable. Um, with the, the the sort of focus on you know academic attainment for you know the, the, the what is the majority of the cohort the uh, the implication of a high stakes accountability system and 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 what all of that means um, and it does and we know don't we we know because because all, all the sort of you know reporting and um, and research has been done over recent years schools um, you know, modify their behaviour in 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 view of some of these pressures and some some perhaps more deliberately uh, than others but it's a i think you have to sort of look above the level of the school and and maybe uh you know as i sort of concluded in in the book this this is this is really a failure of policy um and it's not a it's not a recent thing either it's not a um uh it's not that any one government has done this you know 
badly or you know they are being particularly failed by the by the current government i think you you can probably go back about you know 25 30 years and find evidence of um where the the policy to you know towards inclusion has sort of fallen a bit short it's never really fully delivered i mean it's again it's worth you've got to kind of give credit where it's due um, if you look at other systems internationally um the uk has you know is really kind of out there it's made huge um developments in its in, you know, in inclusion that's not to say that it's completely failed but um it is it's arguably n- not perhaps been the the priority that other things have been for for governments um and i think it is a, a as I say, if we're going to sort of point the finger anywhere, I would say that it is it. It's just it's just been in a uh, it's, it's at the policy level, and I think I think we're kind of in danger of seeing it again with with the green paper. I think it, it, there's no there's no sort of d- denying the ambition there. You know, it's quite it's quite clearly there in terms of wanting an, an inclusive system, but. The detail and how do you, how do you bring that about does seem to be missing, and it's more about sort of accountability and 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 so on. That's what I sort of seem to be seeing in the green paper. That's important, but yeah, there is. I, I think just sort of ha- having a high level ambition, saying that's what we want to see, will is very unlikely to kind of bring it to you know, bring it into being. For a while now, teachers and leaders have been calling out for more specific training in send. A petition launched in March asking for SEND training to be mandatory for all teaching staff has gathered almost 29,000 signatures. The SEND review does include some proposals on training, but how much is that diluted pedagogical diet due to a lack of skill around supporting students with SEND? I mean, that's definitely an element of it. I think there are, I think that there are probably two things. One, one, one is that, and then, and, um, and then the other is the sort of behaviour that it sort of lead, leads to with teachers sort of holding off and assuming that because there is a teaching assistant in the room, they're the expert and they can kind of pick up the slack. There's a, there's a particular set of issues with those, but just to address the, the teacher training one, I mean, we've known it, it sort of continually comes up in you know, in service, even that the, 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 the DFE do of newly qualified teachers you know, as was. Um, that it's one of the 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 areas that that new teachers rate as being one of their weakest. You know, they're uh, you know, where where are you most confident and where do you feel most skilled? Or the kind of bottom of the pile, quite consistently, is you know in, in addressing these of cho- you know children with additional needs is is very often there. It's I mean, it's again, it's worth saying that it's not like. Um, we haven't done things, you know, it is, there is, again, there, there is, there have been efforts to improve um, this element of teacher training. But I, I think what we are, what we're kind of seeing, you know, what you've described is, it, well, is it really sufficient? Is it really, is it really kind of doing, um, doing the job? I'm always reminded of um, the, Mary Warnock's report into into special education, which was published in 1978, and in 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 when she published that and the, that the results of that inquiry in 1978, she made a, a very specific point about teacher training, and she said it will it will take 40 years from this point to 
train everybody, all, all teachers sufficiently in you know, meeting the needs of, of, of children with additional needs. Um, and what she was talking about is if we start doing that today, we have to train all the teachers who are, who are currently in the system, we have to train all the ones who are coming into the system, and then in 40 years, all the ones who are you know, unskilled would have retired anyway. So it's a, she, she kind of saw it as a very, you know, that's a very sort of slow process for that to go through. Now, you know, that was, she said that would take 40 years in 1978. And here we are sort of several, several years after that staging post. And as, as I say, you know, it'd be naive to say that things aren't better than what they were 40 years ago. But it's, st- it's very still clearly a concern. And you know, one of the, as I said, one of the other other elements in in the mix is you have. You know, it's very very common for for children with with an EHCP to have one to one support from from a teaching assistant, and there are lots of assumptions that get made about how skilled those teaching assistants are to work with children with you know, often quite complex needs, and you know they, you know they do heroic work i think in trying to into you know what we we found in the in the study was that they are acting like a bridge between what's happening in the in the classroom what the teacher's doing and you know trying to sort of differentiate it verbally or you know, modify it or explain things on the hoof and it's i mean that's really really difficult if we've got teachers saying we're not prepared and not trained to do that then you know, why expect a, a teaching assistant who, who hasn't had the benefit of teacher training to do any better? Um, again, that's not, a, that's not a criticism of teaching assistants by any stretch of the imagination. If, any, if anything, it's to sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of defend their position as well. They, you know, we could argue they are equally let down uh, in this system as well. So I think there are a, a, a few things going on. And and undoubtedly, te- you know, t- uh, teacher training is an is an element that that we need to work on. Um, but I think there are I think there are other things as well. And I and, and I would single out leadership on uh, um, for on on SEN. And I think that would that should and that ought to sort of stem from if you're confident and competent in your teaching as a classroom teacher, then imagine being able to carry that into leadership positions, whether that's you know, you know, leading a, a curriculum area, or leading a, a year group, or or you know, in, through middle leadership into into senior leadership. And I do think there's a little bit of a, a crisis of of leadership for SEN as well. And um, before it, it sounds like I'm having a go at head teachers again, I'm not. I can p- completely see why. Yeah, you know, lots of competing priorities. Why that one might might slip, but. You know, maybe it's a again, it's a bit of a a quirk and a criticism, perhaps, of our accountability system. That our accountability system does lead schools to um, no. Actually, a better way of putting that is is our accountability system doesn't incentivize inclusion. It doesn't incentivize schools to to do do the very very best. Um, by 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 children with special needs, um, and they're sort of not recognised or rewarded for it. And maybe that's um, maybe that's something that really does kind of urgently need addressing. And that could be something that, if it is addressed, 
then that might see the sort of behaviour and the cultural change that we need. If I think the, the Green Paper does talk about you know, a need for, for culture change, but again, um, how you go about that and what you would need to change seems a little bit absent. And I think, but I think anyone connected with the system, uh, particularly school leaders, would say, yeah, it, it, if we were better recognised for what we did and not and not sometimes punished for it, uh, for doing the kind of morally right thing, um, it might encourage other schools to do to do more themselves. So we know there are issues with SEND provision in mainstream schools. As Webster says, this is not the fault of teachers, but there are concerns around structural exclusion, training and SEND leadership. Are these settings then the best place for children with SEND? Is the government right to recommend that the majority of children with SEND attend mainstream provision? One answer to that is, why, why shouldn't they be in mainstream school? You, you know, there is... Um, I think there is a... I think the starting point should be that there, there, there is an entitlement. They have an entitlement to that, and that is that is really what we should be working towards. Now, there will there will always be a a small, a quite small, smaller, relatively proportion of children whose needs are so profound and multiple and acute that it does make it challenging. It is challenging for mainstream schools. Um, to 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 meet the needs of those of those children, and it's it's kind of naive not to not not to um, not to not to sort of consider that. Um, there is also, I think, the the issue of um, parental choice as well, which often comes up, isn't it, when we're talking about schools? And I think if parental choice is is to mean anything, then you have to sort of apply it to the specialist system as well, and say, so, well, you know, parents should have have a choice. You know, if if we had a fully fully inclusive system, more or less as they do um, in Italy, you know how how would that go down with with, with parents? You know, they they that might not be their wish for their for their children for their child. So I think we have to recognise that you know, special schools are 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 here to stay. If we ever do sort of go down the Italian route, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a very very incremental um, shift towards that. I wonder if. Part of what's in the in the DfE's mind, as a um, reflecting it in the green paper about you know, um, more children in um, in mainstream settings, is in part driven by um, the fact that we um, they haven't uh, the government haven't been building enough special schools anyway. So we we know there is a supply and demand problem. Um, the population of children who are with SEN and that population particularly who are, you know, um, uh, are likely to require an EHCP is going up year on year. And that's projected to continue increasing for the next, for the next few years. And, you know, there are some estimates that suggest that if we, um, if, if, if um, special school is the correct destination for those uh for those children, we ought to be building about the equivalent of about fifty new special schools a year, when currently the average is five. So, um, it's not it's it's not clear at all if the DfE um, sort of map this across the country. So they so they know that they are building the right schools in the right places where the bulges are likely to occur for the children with particular needs. Um, so there's the, the, the 
what the data seems to suggest very strongly is that the, the sort of demand is comprehensively outstripping supply. So where are these children going to go? Well, there really is only one place um, other than, uh, you know, being, being educated at home. Um, it is, uh, yeah, which might well be a choice for, for some, um, some parents, particularly we're seeing a little bit of legacy of that with the, with the, with the pandemic. But by and large, you know, we're looking at mainstream schools. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, in a sense, you know, w w to answer your question, what is the alternative? I don't know what the alternative The alternative is to, you know, either sort of get building um, or, um, or realise that we do need to um, uh, improve uh, conditions, con what we're doing uh, in the provision in, in mainstream schools. Actually, it's probably a bit of both. These are big systematic issues embedded in policy. But if we think about the average leader, teacher or teaching assistant in a mainstream school, is there anything they could do to improve provision for children with SEND? I, th I think at, at the school level, um, I think there are probably there, there are probably three three things that schools do have some control over, or, or even uh, sort of groups of schools like, like mats. Um, I think we've sort of touched on them a little bit um, already. I think I think the first one would be to to sort of hardwire excellence for for send into career progression systems. So. You, know, you can't progress from a classroom teacher to, to middle leadership to school leadership to mat leadership without evidencing you know, what you have done in your current post for for inclusion and children with SEN. I think that could that could sort of that could motivate um, people. Um, I think uh, I think we definitely need to rethink how we deploy and prepare teaching assistants. Um, and you know I've kind of written about this um, and talked about this this separately. And I think the I think one of the key things that we could really schools could really do, and it really would be quite meaningful for for the the kind of children that we're we're talking about, is for teaching assistants to be su supporting pupils' independence, um, you know, in the classroom and and around learning. Um, because we know there is a there is a a, a problem with you know, children with special needs becoming dependent on on adult support, and it's just it's just something that sort of grows up um, over time. It's 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 all, it's kind of self evident why that's not terribly desirable. It's really interesting, actually. I I I mean I don't, I don't have any kind of evidence to back this up, but anecdotally, my experiences told me that. You know, if there's if there's one thing that that parents whose whose child has an EHCP want for their for their child beyond anything else, it is independence. To be able to be ind independent, to have the confidence to be independent. That's sort of beyond you know academic achievement. That's the that's the thing that, that often sort of comes top of the list. Um, and if that's the case, then we are doing things you know day by day, which work against that and therefore i think there is you know there's the, 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 the stuff that we could do to to you know attend to where those practices lead to, to to dependence and we can um kind of throw that into reverse and and the third thing i would say is is around thinking about how we group 
pupils and uh, particularly in secondary schools and what that means for social experiences. So we found that in the, in the secondary schools where um, we, we were carrying out the research, it, it wasn't just a case that the children were sort of set by attainment into you know, high and middle and, and, and low. Um, but um, it was almost like a return to streaming in some cases where that's, that's like where they were permanently based. You know, they were very often educated alongside the same children who kind of fitted into their sort of same, you know, attainment band and, um, you know, and maybe had special, uh, you know, and quite often that, you know, were on the SEM register too. Um, and I think that sort of, that's a, that's a bit worrying in terms of social experiences. You know, we, we know that, you know, that there is, I think a, I don't think we do ourselves any favours by um, creating conditions where it's not just the learning experience, but the social experience is, is always with the same children, you know, and that is, that's equally true for those in the higher training sets as it is in, is in the lower training sets. So, I think there would be, I would encourage schools to sort of rethink where they, where they felt they could, uh, you know, grouping and setting strategies. And that's not, and I'm not suggesting, you know, throw away setting and introduce mixed attaining setting across the board. I'm, I'm just saying, are there areas of the curriculum where this, this might work? You know, at least sort of, it, you know, it, introduce it, um, I think about introducing it, it you know, to, to where it would be most appropriate and achievable. Brilliant. And then I guess the fourth thing would be to go and buy your book, where all of this is discussed in much more detail and teachers can um, find out a bit more about all of this. Well, even better than that, Kate, you, can, you don't have to buy it at all. No, you can it's have free, it. You can it? have it for free. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, so the book is called The Inclusion Illusion. It is, uh, it tells the story um, of, uh, as a researcher, based on this research, it tells the story of what school looks like for children with SEN, uh, what mainstream school looks like for children with SEN. Um, and it has, uh, it's been published by UCL Press. And if you, if you Google The Inclusion Illusion and UCL Press, you will find the webpage and you can download the, uh, the e-copy of it for free and I'm not getting a royalty for this so um it, whenever I say this it's not contributing to my holiday fund or anything so <laughs> um uh so yeah go go and um look at is is do, do you know what I I was very um I, I want I wanted to to really kind of exploit the fact that it was going to be made available for free so I have made it a very short read it's about 100 pages and it's in quite quite a large font as well so um it's a it's a it's a yeah you can kind of roll through that on a on a day at the beach over the summer thank you so much for listening to this episode of test podagogy please join us again next week <laughs>